Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daktari Online Medcast. This is the first of three diabetes episodes we have in partnership with Novartis. In this episode, we focus on the management of type 2 diabetes in line with the results of the Victoria trial. Our speakers are Dr. Davis Zombui, a physician with special interest in endocrinology, and Dr. Nancy Kunyea, a board-certified endocrinologist. Remember that this episode counts for two CPD points with the Kenya Medical Practitioners and Dentist Council. Welcome. Welcome to this discussion on the management of type 2 diabetes. Uh, specifically today what we are going to discuss about is just to see the shift in the management of type 2 diabetes over the years. Uh, we've seen so far um, the changing landscape of managing type 2 diabetes since the 1920s uh, during the invention of insulin to now the discovery of newer uh, 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 oral hypoglycemic agents over the years and the application in the management of type 2 diabetes. Specifically, we are going to look at what is different uh, over the years. Uh, we know since the invention of um, sulfonylureas and the metformins and how the guidelines have shifted over the years to try and encompass the management of type 2 diabetes to address uh, glucose lowering and also targeting the management of the complications related to it. Well, today we'll be focusing more on uh, the VERIFY trial. And the reason why we are focusing on this trial is because of the impact and um, the results that we've seen from it. Basically, the VERIFY trial was on combination therapy. So what is the effect of combining uh, metformin and vidagliptin early on in the management of type 2 diabetes, especially in newly diagnosed type 2 diabetic patients? With us today, we are privileged to have Dr. Nancy Kunyiham. Dr. Nancy Kunyia is the chair of the Kenya Diabetes Study Group. She is a consultant physician and endocrinologist based at Aga Khan University Hospital. So we are going to have a candid discussion on just verified trial. We'll look at aspects surrounding the verified trial and the discussions that emanate from, from it so that we can understand how well can we apply this knowledge in our clinical practice. So Dr. Nancy Kunyia, I'll start with the first question, which is actually the basic question relating to this. So the primary scientific uh, question behind the verified trial was to ascertain um, if early combination therapy with metformin plus vidagliptin versus metformin monotherapy was superior in delaying treatment failure and controlling blood glucose. So the question is, what new knowledge have we learned from the verified trial? Thank you, and thank you very much, Dr. Ombui, for this opportunity to have this conversation. I think the VERIFY trial was um, exciting in the sense that it was the first trial to look at early intervention with uh, people living with type 2 diabetes and intervention at a combination therapy level. And this was a cohort of individuals who had just been diagnosed with diabetes Previously, we have had a stepwise approach to management of diabetes that has been changing over the years into thinking, will it be beneficial for these individuals to have combination therapy 
early on and what impact does that have in the long run? So the verified trial gave us some answers towards um, the impact on glycemic durability and the capacity for safe combination therapy early in type 2 diabetes. Okay. Well, that, that, that is um, revealing in itself. And uh, just as a follow-up to that question, then what is the take-home message? I know this question should have come later on, but maybe it's something that we should conclude and then open up that discussion mm. going forward. So what is the take-home message from this study for the clinicians? I think there are three main take-home messages. Yeah. One, that early initiation of combination therapy is of benefit at the start of treatment, at the first interaction with the patient. Okay. Two, that early combination therapy is safe. So there were no significant adverse outcomes compared to in individuals who started off in monotherapy and with a stepwise approach. Mm -hmm. And finally, that we now have evidence that this glycemic durability and what we will discuss mm -hmm. later as a legacy the effect. Legacy. So a benefit that goes way beyond um, just the timing of, of starting the therapy, but has been followed up into the five years. Thank you. Thank you so much. Maybe for the scientific minds, mm -hmm. we can just look at something on the methodology. Mm -hmm. So on the study design, the patients in the study population had an HbA1c of between 6.5 and 7.5%. So based on that, what limitations can be drawn from not including patients with a higher HbA1c into the cohort? Mm -hmm. I think if we look at the 6.5 to 7.5 is a 1%. So it's actually a small, it's, it's a very narrow window um, in terms of uh, H1C. We know that in real life, patients present to us with H1Cs of 9. In Kenya, you live and see 13%. 13, yes. So this is actually a, a small group of people if you're thinking about the timing of um, uh, giving this early combination therapy. Mm. So what this, the limitations that brings in is mm. that the, individuals studied mm -hmm. are not um, similar to the usual cardiovascular outcome trials we've seen. People with long-standing diabetes or who've had diabetes for a, a long time but presented with a high H1C. So I think it does give a limitation in the fact that we cannot comment on certain outcomes, especially cardiovascular outcomes, which we know are the main cause of mortality in type two diabetes. So that is a major limitation. But as we go on to discuss, I think there were some attempts to look at some events in Verify. Thank you, thank you so much. Um, going forward, now the outcomes from this study uh, have ignited back the debate on legacy effect drawn from the UK PDS study. And not just primarily from the UK PDS stu uh, study. We, these are uh, outcomes that were seen from the EDIC uh, follow-up study, mm -hmm. uh, from the DCCT, the Look Ahead uh, mm -hmm. study, the Dark King study, all looking at various aspects in terms of glucose control and their effects long-term in patients mm -hmm. with diabetes. So what is legacy effect and how is this concept blended into this? Yes. Many times we think about it in terms of money <laughs> yes. and wealth and, and things. In type 2 diabetes, a good legacy would be metabolically um, aspects that will be beneficial to you over time. So simply put, I think the legacy effect is the benefit of certain interventions early on in the treatment that can be seen later, later 
and measured mm. later. So in the big trials, like you mentioned, the UKPDS, UKPDS on, mm. and, and the first conversation was around metformin, yeah. was that when metformin was initiated, many years later when they looked at individuals who had been on metformin, even if they had stopped it for a while, it seemed there were some benefits compared to groups who did not did have not. metformin on. Mm. So this is what we are looking at in the Verify in terms of also combination therapy and whether that effect goes on into the future. Yes, and, and, and I think you had started to uh, answer actually that question. Mm -hmm. And just as a progress uh, or addition or an addendum to that question, then can early combination therapy bring about legacy effect? And the reason for this discussion is looking at the other trials. Majorly, they were usually monotherapy agents mm -hmm. that were being discussed in those trials. But now we are having a look at combina combination of metformin plus vidagliptin vis-a-vis metformin alone. Mm. Could, could we uh, arouse the discussion of legacy effect with the VERIFY trial? I think what was interesting, if we look at the VERIFY trial over the 60 months, about yes. five years, yes. is just the sustained glycemic durability for patients who had, because remember they looked at Primary, there was a treatment failure yes. and, and secondary. So individuals were looked at at different times. So even when you look at the cohort who had the first primary and ne next intervention and those who even went on to insulin, it seems there was a benefit that was seen in these groups and sustained over the five years, even with those who went on to treatment failure. So at the three and the five years, those who had combination therapy at onset seemed to have a better effect even in the long, in run, the long in, run in terms of glycemic. Based on that, um, now just to relate back to the principle, is legacy effect a permanent clinical concept? So if I have achieved a glucose control that is desired, then I go on now to stop medication, get back to high uh, HbA1c's over a long time, will those benefits that I had gained help me even if I stop treatment? It's an interesting question and I think I'll start by saying, remember we are going away from just glucocentricity. True. So I think as we're having this conversation, we're not just thinking about HbA1c and glucose levels. There are other metabolic parameters, blood pressure, um, the lipid lowering, and so I think the very powerful studies over time have been like the steno, you know, mm -hmm. just thinking through multifactorial in, in, yes. yeah, interventions yes. so that a sugar alone is not the only thing that will give you a bad outcome. True. Okay. Yes. So we must contextualize, I think, for the, the public and everyone listening to this is that diabetes is not as simple as a glucose. So in that sense, the legacy effect will give you a benefit in as far as glucose uh, durability is concerned. But I think you can negate some benefits based on lifestyle and mm -hmm. choices afterwards. So mm -hmm. if I put on weight yes. 20 kilos <laughs> after stopping my, my, my therapy, yes. there will have been a benefit of early intervention early, but then the metabolic effects mm -hmm. of, of um, poor lifestyle, of inadequate activity yes. and the effect on the organs on that yes. will definitely have a negative impact on, 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 on your outcomes. Yes. 
So I think it's a, a yes and and, and with, a cautious, <laughs> with a cautious with, with caution. Yeah, with caution. Yes, with caution. Well, um, I would like us to handle something that comes up mostly in our clinics, especially a question that comes from our patients. Mm. So you've managed to handle these patients' uh, glucose control. Uh, you've reached your objective, which was maybe to hit a certain HbA1c. And the patient tells, asks you, now can I, can I stop taking medication? Mm. So the question is, for a patient who you've managed to put in remission, yes. um, are we allowed to de-escalate therapy? Is that, is that something that we can do? I think I, I would be comfortable to say yes. Yes. Yes, with a caveat mm -hmm. that you maintain normal glycemia. Yes. Yes, with a caveat that you maintain activity and that your skeletal muscle is, <laughs> is functional, your glute receptors are working. And, uh, and yes, with, uh, with um, importance to understand that you still need to follow up um, these individuals over time. Okay. So even as we get to remission, um, we need to see what is happening with these individuals so that they're not lost to follow up just because you achieved a H1C target over one year that was satisfactory. Yeah. But yes, we do have individuals who have even come from insulin, mm -hmm. significantly reduced weight, mm -hmm. um, improved how you eat, brought down your glucose levels, and we have been able to withdraw therapy. Okay. Yeah. So on this next set of questions, we are going to have a look at the complications related to diabetes. So globally, we still know that cardiovascular diseases pose the greatest uh, challenge in mm. managing uh, diabetes because they're the highest cause of morbidity and mortality among these patients. And it will be good to just see, did Verify trial touch on this aspect of, 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 of control? So were there any measured cardiovascular endpoints from the Verify trial? Not really. Yes. This, this study was not powered to measure cardiovascular outcomes. And I think um, uh, it, it was not the intent of the study. And, and it was designed that way because of the cohort that were initially um, recruited into the study. And they, it were, they were early onset younger, quite a young population. This was 18 to 70 years old. Yes. And so it was deemed that the five years would probably not be an <laughs> adequate time to measure your impact, your on, impact potential on potential cardiovascular outcomes. Do you think that is something that can be followed up maybe from the verified trial going on forward yes, on this I, cohort of patients? I, I think that would be very Some, interesting Someone would to be see. interested to yes. see maybe later years In the on. next 10, 20 years, yes. um, what happens to these individuals and how do they fare okay. as they go along? Okay. You've, you've, bought, you, you've actually... Uh, brought up a subject of the type of patients who were brought in into the study. Mm -hmm. So majorly they were young patients who didn't have many uh, comorbidities associated with diabetes. So the question of um, effectiveness of monotherapy um, in the management of type 2 diabetes had already been explored in the UK PDS study. And it showed that subsequent intensification uh, needed to achieve control in patients due to natural pro progression of the disease. And consequently, the verified trial has brought into limelight some three issues. So one of them is young onset type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. The other one is focus on guidelines on the algorithm of the management of type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. 
And the third, which is something that plagues us toward, uh, till these days, mm. is clinical inertia by mm. physicians. Mm. So the first question is, why should we be concerned about young onset type 2 diabetes? I think we should be very concerned about young onset type 2. Mm -hmm. um, if you think a typical young gentleman like you yeah. getting diabetes at this time, yeah. and, um, and the time of onset of, of, of complications usually mm. still within a very productive age. If we look at the 10-year the mark, you know, we estimate that if you were diagnosed with diabetes, you mm. may have complications yeah. if you present late, yeah. assuming there's no adequate screening. But within the next 10 years is when your risk, if you're not well controlled, to get complications. So we are talking about individuals having complications in their 40s, 50s, 60s, which is a highly productive time not just for the individuals, for families, for societies, and for nations. So it becomes a health, economic, mm. and, and sociopolitical mm. challenge. It's not, mm. just about it's not just about diabetes. When you think about yes. um, what happens if we do not manage young onset type that 2 diabetes. diabetes. And, and maybe for the viewers who might not understand what young onset type 2 diabetes. So wh what is the age frame for young onset type 2 diabetes? So I think we have gone over the years to from insulin dependent <laughs> to non-insulin dependent. And I think the diagnosis and the diagnostic, um, uh, there's been diagnostic improvement, I yes. think, of these categories. Okay. So, and an overlap. So I'm, I'm going to be very cautious to say <laughs> we have type 1 diabetes, which we know is um, typically younger, it could even yeah. occur from birth yes. and usually by, by teenage. Yes. And, and there's a rapid beta cell decline so that your insulin cells mm -hmm. are suddenly drop. Mm -hmm. And those individuals need insulin. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then there's the typical, what we call type 2, yes. who are a little older, it's yes. age related, and it's assumed it's just a reduction in the, the beta cell mm -hmm. function mm -hmm. associated with increased weight as we grow older okay. and probably a genetic tendency. Okay. Then there's a younger group there yes. that we find many times in clinical practice that we can't fully categorize. Many times they're overweight yes. at a young age. Mm -hmm. So for the audiences to know that even in teenage now, we do have type 2 type diabetes, diabetes earlier just because of increasing obesity rates. Yeah. So anyone who does not fall into that clear category, we need mm -hmm. to think about where does this individual fall? Yes even when they are younger, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think the age brackets are, have changed over time mm -hmm. and with society's patterns of exercise, of mm -hmm. diet, mm -hmm. and just our lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So type two is coming at a much younger age, mm -hmm. but it's not just a genetic, it's yeah. also, it's a lifestyle, lifestyle. And, and, and how we are eating okay. um, affecting that. Okay. Now, now for, for a more complicated um, approach, yes. uh, and maybe this is just to help the clinicians out there. So for the type of patient that you've described, for the clinician who's best in the office, how could they investigate this patient in terms of trying to um, discriminate between the types of diabetes? Could you give maybe a small overview mm -hmm. on how they can approach investigating this patient to confirm the type of diabetes that they have? 
So I think in an ideal setting, yes. you do have um, antibodies. You can check guard antibodies. Yes, yes. But we know that one, in, in our setting, there, there are challenges with um, access, yes. the cost. Yes. So where you are able to, you can check antibodies to, re to, to, to ensure they are not type they're one. not type one. Yes. Okay, so you remove the autoimmune. Yes. But remember, there are a certain percentage also who will be negative. Negative, yes but you have to behave like your typical type yeah, one. Yeah. So I think in clinical practice, I, I think for this category of individuals is look at the metabolic profile of the individual, True. risk stratify them, True. so that these are individuals, as much as they're young, mm -hmm. in their mm -hmm. 30s or 40s, mm -hmm. you still want to look at their lipids, yes. you still want to look at uric acid, you yes. still want to look at their urine and proteins, yes. and you will be looking for markers yes. of potential complications potential earlier than we classically would have. And then you can metabolically put them into uh, that that bracket that of bracket. this fits a type two metabolic phenotype. Thank you. I think that will be helpful yeah. uh, for the clinicians who are actually watching this video. So l let's now try and approach the the guidelines mm -hmm. because we know that the verified trial was published in the Lancet and presented in ESD in 2019, but we've seen very little changes in the guidelines. Um, I know there are some guidelines which are now encompassing uh, approaching monotherapy and how you can add other drugs on it. There are others which have defined exactly how you can start dual therapy mm -hmm. in the management of type 2 diabetes. But also now there's new discussion because of the newer molecules that are coming in and are trying to take center stage in the management of diabetes as you had rightly put it glucocentricity is something is a concept that we are trying to move away mm. because of now looking at the cardiometabolic profiles of these patients and the renal issues that encompass that are actually known to have uh, to cause morbidity and mortality in mm. these kinds of patients now Based on that, and based maybe on our guidelines as KDSG, I think we've sat down and come up with guidelines on how to manage uh, type 2 diabetes patients in our setup. Maybe your comment, under what situations are we allowed to offer combination therapy to our patients as initial therapy? Any patient yeah. who is coming in with suspected type 2 diabetes and you're thinking about oral therapy, yeah is um, we always think safety first. Yes. I think uh, safety is important. <laughs> You're thinking about um, hypoglycemic risk for the individual. And I think with the guidelines is the existence of two things, your renal and there's a risk, the atherosclerotic risk. Yeah, yes. cardiovascular disease. Yes. So those two, I think, have, have more recently shifted yes. what medications you would use earlier on. So the SGLT2, um, whether DPP-4, mm -hmm. whether GLP-1 comes in, mm -hmm. and then you think about weight and all those um, parameters. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I'm very aware that that is in the realm of maybe specialists and physicians. And in this country, we still have many individuals being seen by clinical officers, medical officers. Mm -hmm. So you find sometimes the practice is a bit discordant yeah. just because of what is available. So where we have the luxury of um, affordability of, of all the agents and we know with the access programs we do have mm -hmm. the Glyptin for instance yes. now available in the government facilities. Verify has shown us that it's actually safe to start in type 2 diabetes 
uh, bearing that there are no other complications yes. and no renal, mm -hmm. you can actually start metformin and, and, and a vilzagliptin and a combination therapy in these individuals at onset, at onset. without significant Because. hypoglycemia. So we almost can confidently say that any person coming in with type 2 diabetes, this is something, a conversation that should be had early. You could ask, are there individuals who come in and because of the history you've taken are on very high sugary drinks, for instance, people who drink Coke every day, <laughs> who, and you find those individuals actually can shift a lot just by lifestyle. And you've seen those, yeah. you know, they have a very sudden drop. Mm -hmm. So there are, I think there's still room for individualization. Yeah. There's still room to say in the, 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 the to, to, is it have the conversation with the individual about mm. what practically can be done yeah. even before we start this treatment? Mm -hmm. And remember, mm -hmm. even for the trial, there was a run-in period there. Actually, um, it was. An, edu <laughs> an education. So in real life, we don't pop pills immediately without the, the patient and the individual understanding, especially for a lifelong journey. Yes. But when it is time to start therapy, yeah. we need to start thinking about combination therapy, therapy. early. Yes, so as, as Dr. has alluded, Uh, it's always important to remember that the care of a patient with diabetic is usually patient-centered. Mm -hmm. It's something that you discuss with the patient. Mm -hmm. uh, the algorithms don't decide mm -hmm. on a blanket cover on how to approach these patients. You have to discuss the risks, what you found, and how the approach will benefit a patient on an individual basis. Mm. I think that's the take-home message. message yeah. Yes. And I think, Oboye, if you want to use hardline numbers, anyone with a H1C over 1.5 to 2 over target. Yes. So we are talking, if you are looking, thinking about 6.5 being your cutoff, even when you are at 7.58, these are individuals with uncomfortably yep. blood growth. Yep. Yeah. Um, and just because of that, um, Algorithms dictate much of what we do in the clinics and how we manage our patients. Mm. And this brings into question um, the stepwise management approach that we've been using over the years. Um, you, you've practiced for a long time and um, maybe this is a comment uh, that can uh, maybe help people out there. Does the stepwise approach contribute to clinical inertia when it comes to treatment intensification? <laughs> I think I'll, I'll say definitely. Yes. And in clinical practice for two reasons. Yeah. Um, one is with younger type 2 diabetes, especially the, the, the cohort and the people we are thinking about with a verified trial, is the perception of time. The lie that we have time. <laughs> the lie that, you know, we've got time. We've got time. And, and that's a human perception. So when I see you here at, in your 30s, 40s, it's very hard to envisage in 10 years. In 10 years. But that's how we must think about diabetes. Yeah. It's not about just the here and now. Yeah. So the here and now impact the 10 years the 10 and the years. quality mm -hmm. of life. So I always approach care with thinking about how do I want to be at 80? We want to be off dialysis. We want to have your feet intact. So the perception of time, I think, is a big one. And stepwise logarithms also give perception of time. Yes. So you say, let's do three months. Let's, let's do, do six months, months. Six months. Yeah, we see. And then the second in, in chronic care, I find, is as you connect with your patients and develop rapport, there is always the danger of negotiation, which 
sometimes the clinician loses also sight of the targets that were there initially. So patients come in and say, no, I'll be better next time. Please give me three months. I know what I did. Yes. And those three months become one year, become, become two years. So a logarithms that then allow that also mm. give the clinician some form of just comfort, comfort. that we are okay. Yes. And we live in this illusion yeah. with uh, the patients. And, uh, and the outcomes are not good, as we see, especially yeah. where we don't have um, care models that ensure that people come back. People are paying for their care. Yeah. So nothing dictates that a patient will come at the three-month three mark. Months, yeah. During COVID, we've seen people coming a year later. So all those factors influence outcomes for our patients. Well, um, and actually, based on that and your understanding and experience uh, with clinical inertia as a concept that actually determines the control of mm -hmm. glucose and other comorbidities in these patients, what learning lessons could we derive from it? What strategies can be adopted by clinicians mm. to mitigate against clinical inertia in treatment intensification? I, I think two um, come to mind um, initially. I think the role and the power of education of the individual at diagnosis. So from a clinical care point of view, that interaction at the beginning setting the pace on the targets involving the individual on this is a goal that is not the doctor's yes it, it is our goal <laughs> it is our goal um i think that is really key towards um the journey you know it's a journey mm -hmm. of management mm -hmm. and I, I just find if those boundary lines are put in the patient can also keep the doctor mm -hmm. In check. Uh, in check. <laughs> yeah. And say, come, my H1C is not good, Dr. <laughs> Why aren't we changing? So you have that motivated patient who occasionally comes and says, something's not right. So that's the kind of relationship I think we are working towards in terms of mitigating. Mm -hmm. The second, um, I think, is group and peer. Um, is it forums to, to remind each other of what our mandate is as clinicians? Yeah. Um, and that goes with the role of the nurse educator. I think I can't overemphasize the need for nurse educators in this environment and the role they play in helping the individuals and their families because we need social support. You know, it's not just about the individual, individual and the doctor. Yeah. What is happening in the family setup is also important. Yes. So this whole thing about getting to our targets and, and quality of life mm -hmm. needs to be seen holistically. holistically. So I, mm -hmm. I find let's start the journey well mm -hmm. and, and support and th that support as we go along is really important. Patient, educator and the, and the clinician. Okay. So just back to the verified trial, I think we've... we've taken a detour a bit just mm. to look at other components um is the question now maybe could you offer insights and i know this is more related to our is more of a pharmacological question mm. could you offer insights into why the combination therapy of metformin plus vidagliptin was superior to metformin monotherapy in delaying uh, retarding treatment failure in the verified mm. trial I think uh, they both have some mechanisms that overlap. So yes. we know both these medications cause um, a reduction in um, hepatic glucose output, yes. which we know is a significant part of just the balance of glycemia for persons with abnormal glucose. Yeah. Um, I think the mechanistically is the, the benefit of metformin, which gives increased insulin sensitivity, yes. and then vildagliptin, which has beta cell yes. stimulation. Yes. So I, I think that overlay, yes. the DPP-4, of course, as a class have um, 
early satiety. Yeah. They have yes. other benefits that we, mm-hmm. we, we know from their mechanisms of action. Yeah. And I think these combinations are being found over and over again to give benefit to the patient, to the patient. as opposed to monotherapy. Yes. We talk about the ominous octet. Yes. So the, the, the targets of medications is not just about the pancreas, it's about what's happening in the skeletal, in the skeletal. muscle, mm-hmm. in the fat cells. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that those mechanisms overlapping are what give you the, yeah. the benefits. Yeah. So thank you for that. And, and, and based on that, mm. uh, then I, I know it might be early, mm. but could we conclude then that the outcomes seen from the vidagliptin could be translated as a class effect of the DDP4 inhibitors? I know this is a tricky question. <laughs> but, but <laughs> I think it's a tricky question because we, I don't think we have yet enough evidence to genera- for the generalizability yes. of of the outcomes, especially when we think about long-term um, cardiovascular outcomes. Remember, they did adjudicate the first events in yes, Verify. in Verify. Yeah. Um, but right now, I, I don't think we can say We can call it. Call it. Well, it's too early. <laughs> it's a bit early. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, and, and actually looking at that, I know we are really trying to focus much on the Verify trial. Mm. Uh, based on that discussion then, are there any other early combination therapies being evaluated mm. in the DPP4 class? I think there, we've looked at, um, I think citagliptin has been looked at more recently with... Yes. Uh, Citagliptin and, and glimepiride. Yes. Head on with uh, glagin. Glagin and liraglutide and, yes. and, and putting them in earlier, you know, less than 10 years duration of diabetes yes. and seem to have some benefit in grade uh, for the insulin liraglutide. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we're having more and more studies that are doing head-to-head comparisons. Exactly of medications that we have had existing previously. Previously. Mm -hmm. And just for us to think back and reflect um, which is the better direction to go. We've had these classes of drugs for a long time. time, The combinations work better, don't they work, and which ones. So the grade study has been there. We know Mm -hmm. that triple axel is being looked at now, which is Mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. And again, another another comparison of medications we use yes. routinely and yes. seeing what combinations what are better. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe in a few years' time, we'll be having results from the triple soil study and, yes. and we'll just see what, what outcomes are we seeing with these medications that have been with us for some time and the benefits that they will actually uh, extend to the patients in management of uh, diabetes. I think triple axel is interesting because if you think about metformin, DPP4, DPP4 and, and SGLT2, SGLT2 yeah. I think the benefits also for um, adherence is, is quite transformational yes. for patients yes. in terms of long-term therapies. Yeah. So l- let me move to a subject that is Tony. And I'm, I'm saying Tony because metformin has been with us for a very long time. Mm. It's actually one of those drugs that till now we still don't understand how exactly it works. Yes, we have concepts that it increases insulin, uh, it decreases insulin resistance, it works on the liver to reduce, to control hepatic gluconeogenesis Mm. and glycogenolysis, you know, all those concepts that have been known over time. And um, over time, we are seeing newer drugs that are coming into the market. We have the SGLT2s, we have the GLP-1s, drugs that are coming in with much more uh, uh, pharmacological actions, pleiotropic actions in the management of diabetes that are designed not just to focus on the glucose, 
but also to reduce the risks in the cardiovascular space, in the renal space. And we are wondering now, maybe from a comment from you, mm -hmm. what is the future of metformin? metformin. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, metformin, at least in the context of Africa. Yes. And I think in the context of science. Yes. Still has got very hard, good evidence for its use. So I think it will be a long time yes. before we throw it out completely. <laughs> I think it has a good safety profile. Yes. I'm mm -hmm. um, tolerated now, um, even with lower levels of ejection fractures yes. and as, as, as studies have come on. Um, second, it's cheap. It's widely available. Um, and, 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 and used, remember, in and other endocrinopathies, huh? yes. still used in PCOS. Big, yes, yes, yeah. And uh, so I think it still will have a role. Mm -hmm. I think the benefit of all the newer agents is even thinking through these combinations. I think that's the way to look at it rather than an either or, mm -hmm. is what mm -hmm. combinations would be best. Which yeah. combination would um, go hand in hand with metformin yes. for the benefit of the patient. Yes. Yeah. So as you've heard, metformin is here to stay. <laughs> so it's, it's, I, I know it, there's, there's, there's this illusion that because we are having these newer drugs, maybe metformin's place will be downgraded in time. But as you've heard from Dr. Tari, the benefits, the evidence is still there mm. for the place of this drug in the management of type 2 diabetes. Um, as, we, as we wind up this discussion, you know, we, we have to be real. Uh, in terms of, yes, we have the data, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, we have the science behind it. We, we've seen the outcomes. But now we are in a developing country, okay? And as you've alluded before, cost is still an issue. Mm. So this combination therapy that we are seeing, so metformin plus vidagliptin and maybe other combination therapies, is this a cost-effective, is this approach cost-effective in our setup? I think when you look, there are two ways to look at it. Yeah. There's an immediate cost and look at <laughs> this is what the gluten cost, this is what metformin cost. Yes. Which is probably a nearsighted uh, view of diabetes care. And this, the long-term costs to the individual to the healthcare industry, to the HMOs, and to the country, mm -hmm. and to the nations of the world, actually. Yes. Yes. So when you look at combination therapy, um, it may seem expensive, I think, at onset, because mm -hmm. you're traditionally used to putting in a cheap yes. uh, one agent, <laughs> change my food, and yes. in three months, yes. let's increase the budget. But maybe it's time to make that shift, that the, the cost of the combination now will actually be significantly um, cost-saving in the long run. So when you, I think you look at the long-term benefits and the benefits on glycemic durability, if you're talking about five years later, still being on dual agents, or even if you fail, that your control has been so good uh, through that time, I think is, is, is a worthwhile cost benefit. Mm -hmm. So I think there will be a role. I think the governments and the private sector, public part, private partnerships have made a big difference. I think we have access care programs now mm -hmm. that are making them available. So it's not the privy of the wealthy and the private sector. But now we have in the government hospitals, now we have, even if they're not in combination, we have the agents separately, separately yeah. and at an affordable cost. Mm -hmm. So as a, I think with the future, I would say they will be more available and I'm more hopeful 
towards looking at models to make them accessible rather than negating that they're expensive. Okay. Uh, this, this next question is, <laughs> um, when a drug is being introduced into the market, it undergoes clinical trials mm. before it's, you know, uh, approved for use uh, in the management of conditions. Um, DPP-4s have been with us for quite some time, so, so it's meant for me. Mm. Um, but we are looking at verified trial that looked at this combination later on in 2019. Mm. That is actually when the results came out. Um, before we rush, should we wait for real-world studies to back up the data that is being seen from this highly controlled environment of the verified trial? Should we wait for it? Should we adopt this and move on? W what's your comment? My comment is that um, I think, unfortunately for Africa, we still lag behind as um, um, being, and I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully, um, is it being involved in the conduct of a lot of clinical trials, trials that are global. Yes. And that could be a system issue. I think there's policy issues. Mm. There, there are yeah. a number of issues for us to reflect on yeah. in terms of why that is not happening. And I think opportunities for um, engagement. For the verified trial, I think we've ha we have real life data mm. with GARD, with Vildagliptin yes. previously, yes. which was real world. Mm. I mean, in Asia, yeah. and, uh, huge populations yes. and, and more safety data. For Verify, we had, there were 254 centers. Yes. Yeah. Um, 34 countries. Mm -hmm. And South Africa was represented. Yes. So if you're talking about Africa lean, there were some Africans. <laughs> there were 2.6% of the population, about 1,000 yeah, of them, thousand about thousand. 988. So um, it would have been nice to have a, a bigger population. But mm -hmm. I think because we have previous real world data, and these are not new medications mm -hmm. per se, Vildagliptin mm -hmm. is not new. Um, I, I think we can proceed with um, taking on this this um, applicability. applicability. Yeah. Well, now, as we wind up this discussion, um, we, we've seen the kind of patients that were actually um, taken into the verified trial for this study. And um, as we focus much more on the verified trial, there are real issues that we need to discuss uh, as we close this discussion. Um, we know that in Kenya, we still have a problem with early detection and treatment of type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know this is more of a policy question, but policy cuts across uh, uh, the principles of management of these conditions because it dictates how we uh, risk stratify these patients, mm -hmm. how we approach diabetes from not just a clinical point of view, but also from a political, social, and other aspects of, 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 of management that are brought in into management of type 2 diabetes. You being the chair of the Kenya uh, Diabetes Study Group, what solutions can be adopted uh, to aid in early detection and treatment of type 2 diabetes? What, what could you uh, put on paper? things that can be done to aid in the early detection and treatment of type 2 diabetes. Thank you. I think a question for definite reflection. The Kenya Diabetes Study Group, I think, uh, is, is for those who don't know um, and are not for profit and um, is 
came together with a group of initially diabetologists, mm -hmm. and now we have a few more endocrinologists in the space, mm -hmm. and um, and and few because there've been very few people training in this <laughs> specialty, but a growing specialty, mm -hmm. um, according to the need that is there. Mm -hmm. I think we have been engaged more from a, a, an educational um, support aspect as specialists. So I see our role in engaging with one, there's the higher um, uh, policy making in terms of how is education disseminated. I see our role in engaging with training being done with the public private sector. So like now, you know, there's the eye care and there yeah. are other models being done with uh, the Ministry of Health. Mm -hmm. And those are spaces the specialists can go in and plug in um, and engage in just um, di dissemination of knowledge. We have uh, a role to play, I think, in guidelines. Mm -hmm. But remember, guidelines are for clinicians and <laughs> practitioners. Yes. Okay, yes. So that is an education point of view for healthcare practitioners. On the ground, I think as a country, what we need to think is start thinking about schools. So let's reverse it. So not <laughs> work so much with the people with diabetes, but yeah. what are we doing with the younger with children? With the younger children. So I think campaigns on that front, mm -hmm. engaging as specialists, even mm -hmm. when you're specialists, and yeah. going down to, to the school, a younger generation of people, the adolescents, mm -hmm. um, and opportunities to educate them and engage, mm -hmm. and workplaces. Mm -hmm. So those are the two places I think we would, um, is it have a, a bigger, a big catchment and impact mm -hmm. in terms of educating the next generation and a younger population mm -hmm. so that this verified, we have less patients we who need to be <laughs> in the verified trial. Yeah. So I, I see it as, as two pronged. There's the healthcare yeah. engagement with healthcare practitioners at policy education level and down here, just the engagement of um, the, the children and a younger population in the workplaces. With, uh, and that's like li li lifestyle. I mean, how we live. How we live. And early detection. So that screening is in place. And with the HMOs, I think also thinking through what models will help us pick individuals with diabetes early, early. Mm -hmm. cover their cost of care. Yes. So that even for national health, we are covering them to prevent long-term mm -hmm. outcomes rather than saying we are paying for complications. complications. So these preventive strategies, I think, are really important. And for insurance is also, I think, to start engaging with wellness. Wellness, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, we, we, we've come to the end of this uh, discussion on the verified trial. We've looked at the benefits of early combination therapy in the management of type 2 uh, diabetes. We've seen the benefits, we've seen how we can apply this in clinical practice. We've seen it is safe, we've seen it's effective, we've seen it's actually cost-effective. Uh, maybe I should just give a minute to our endocrinologist, Dr. Nancy Kunyiha, just to wrap up. What, what is the take-home message now from this? What, what would you tell the audience in maybe 30 seconds or one in, in 30 seconds, <laughs> eat healthy, <laughs> eat less when you don't need it. Um, let's prevent diabetes. I yeah. think prevention is really important. Yeah. Screen so that we detect early. Mm -hmm. And for the healthcare practitioners yeah. that intervene early. Yeah. Let's avoid clinical inertia. It mm -hmm. is safe to treat early, it's safe to use combination therapy. And, and, and um, the more aggressive we are earlier on, the less 
um, long-term complications we'll have for our, our, our the persons living with diabetes. Yeah. And remember, it's multifactorial. It's multifactorial. It's not just about the sugar. Okay. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for participating in this interview. I hope this will be of use to you in your practice and where you work. And I hope you will learn something from this discussion. That's it for today. Log on to your Dactary online portal, answer a few MCQs, and get your points. Bye-bye. Till next time.